Hey team, welcome to episode 69 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. In this episode, we venture into a significant and very exciting phase of transition closing time. Yes, we've talked about closing time in episode 27, but as you finalize and look towards selling or buying a practice, The weeks and days leading up to closing can be and will be filled with twists and turns and even for the most prepared hurdles that can throw you off course. This episode is about the potential hardships that those events can cause in the transition process, how to prepare for that roller coaster ride and how to just know those things are coming because we can handle those if we see them on the horizon. So before we do that, Mr. Loretto, how are you? I'm doing excellent, girl. We've had some time together. We have had some time. I mean, there's some, probably some stories. I mean, we have spent, what, four days in a row with each other? It has been a lot. So we just came back from our uh, Keen Waters annual meeting. 475 people were out in Phoenix. We rented out the entire Diamondback Stadium. So we fun. had big dinners. Yeah. We had bus rides. And... <laughs> some stories we will leave for non-podcast discussions, but it was so fun. Well, just to set you up a little bit, to give you a little insight <laughs> of the fun, there might have been a bus ride on Saturday, and Christy and I may, along with a whole bunch of people, might yeah. have been dancing. Yeah, maybe. In the bus aisle. Like, why do rules not apply to buses? (laughs) (laughs) I did see a video. I did not see me dancing in the aisle. And that's okay. We don't need to share that. It's all in the memory. It's all up here. (laughs) Yeah, we had just a blast. So, man, I came back on Sunday. Normally, I just do Uber. Roxanne picked me up. And I could tell she was just kind of itching to do something. I was feeling it. You know, as a husband, you know, kind of like feeling out your spouse. I knew she wanted to go do something. It's 8 o'clock. I just want to go sleep. You know, you talk to people for four days. just I just yes. want to shut down, but you know, that's part of being married. So yeah, she picks me up and she's looking all pretty and dressed up. I'm like, we're definitely going out. Go I, I know Roxanne yeah. with jammies on and we're going to go back to the couch. <laughs> and I know Roxanne with her hair done, it telling me what I need to do. So yeah, I had to just like muster up and say, oh my God, I missed you so much. I can't wait to talk for three hours straight. <laughs> I know you were tired coming back. Oh my gosh, we had... so tired. I took the couch route. Yeah, yeah. My family, it was, I guess, crud weather here. And so my family was itching to get out of the house. And so I was the person who said, you guys go have fun and yeah. I'll see when you get here and my youngest also had just wanted to be on the couch so we just cuddled and hung out but we've got a lot of these coming up so we don't do this often but we're pre-recording this for a few months from now because we have Hinman we've got AACD coming up so we're Mm -hmm. gonna have a lot of road time and speaking time and a lot more of these like four or five days together lots of activity lots of talking so super super excited about those we're actually doing our first live podcast at Hinman so listen in well hopefully listen if you missed it go back to the March episodes we're recording live so we're prepping for that and very excited gonna have a previous client there who's attending Hinman and we're gonna interview her it's gonna be fantastic so but this episode is something that came of just our normal world right Mm -hmm. our normal transition world these things happen I can only think and I think they are they weigh very heavily on me there's only been probably less than a handful of actual transitions that haven't closed because of one of these hurdles and those I remember very vividly because they happen so infrequently but almost I would say out of ten you know five have something that pop up at closing that we didn't expect 
or expected or were kind of out of our hands, something that happened from a client side or a banking side. So we're going to go through like five or six things that we think people need to be prepared for, understand, exist, and some of the things that we can do things about but some of the things we just kind of have to know they're going to exist and maybe have a game plan for when they do and how to handle them in the most efficient manner. So I would like to say that this episode is titled, We Warned You. (laughs) Okay. So it's definitely a roller coaster. And yes, we did do an episode on this that has some similar, but I am telling you, we warned you. Okay. Because it's just, there's just so many emotions and It feels like it's falling apart. It's never going to get done. They do get done. It's such a last minute set of events and one thing's connected to the other. And so again. And I think some of these are just, there's so many people, like too many cooks in the kitchen type of a thing. Like there just inherently has to be a lot of different people and functions and personalities and needs in the end of a process. And so we have clients who are like, okay, I want to be as prepared as possible. And we are, right? We get all the things done. We've gathered all the pieces, but lenders, they They've got a process, they've got a pipeline, they're gonna do your lean search at the same time they do all their other lean search, partly because they wanna make sure it's as close to closing as possible, you know? They've gotta review financials, they have underwriters, they have closing people. So some of these things are a function of lending, some are not, but you know, those are certain things that we can't, no matter how much we want to prepare for those, we can't until very close to closing. So inherently some of this is just going to be what it is and that drives people like myself and others who are very scheduled and type A crazy. And I've just accepted a little bit of crazy. You have to. So let's talk about the one, I just kind of mentioned it, but lean search, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. explain to me kind of how that can mess up a deal. Well, again, the very last minute, the bank is going to say, hey, is there anything that this guy or gal has borrowed? And somehow there's an actual lien on mm-hmm. this practice. And typically it's not the big loan that you you would think about, like maybe a Bank of America loan for the original practice and you're, that guy or gal still has a loan. And you're buying. Of course, that's going to be on there. Mm-hmm. It's a random thing. Mm-hmm. It is something so random like a piece of equipment that was 15 years ago. It mm-hmm. just never, never got removed. And so then you're having to communicate with that particular company and you got to have a letter issue that, you know, that's been released and, you know, that's just doesn't need to be there. And this is all last minute stuff. So it's one of those things that we certainly want to run that UCC to figure out what is out there and what is, if there's anything that is showing up that we need to know that sooner or later and prepare that seller so that we can get that done and obviously prepare the buyer that those mm-hmm. are one of those little hiccups there. Yeah, the two, I've had two recently that caused a big delay and one was actually related to the building. The mm-hmm. building was being sold in this transition and it was from a mortgage that was 25 years old or 24 years old because they drop off at 25 and that was the problem. 24 years old, it was with a bank that had been sold twice. These bigger banks gobble up the smaller banks and so the paperwork for that one had gotten lost. It was one year away from just being able to be based on this underwriter's rule kind of like ignored. So there was a lot of digging. It was us reaching out to context of context and, you know, and the bankers reaching out to context to be like, okay, who would be the best person for this really old lien? And where the paper records held for this because it was before everything was digitized. So that was problematic. One thing that surprises people is lines of credit. So like if you ever get a line of credit, they oftentimes put a lien on your practice assets, even if you haven't pulled on that line of credit. So sometimes it's just simply canceling that line of credit and then getting a termination letter. So some of them are very easy to handle, especially if they're with the current bank. Some are older. 
again, just kind of being aware and understanding what those are and knowing where your relationships were and what you financed and just if you're a seller, having that in your head so that you kind of can anticipate what will be on there and then having those relationships with who to contact if you end up having something on there. So those are big and that leads me to the next one, which is these CARES Act funds, the PPP, the EIDLs, all the other funds you could have received during the post-COVID period or COVID period. PPP does not have a lien, but the EIDL does have a lien. And so that is something that if you received those funds and you're in transition, understanding that those are gonna have a lien and something you need to take care of, PPP forgiveness doesn't necessarily have a lien, but all lenders and buyers know it exists. And so it's very much something that if it's been forgiven, keeping that forgiveness paperwork, keeping the email, making sure you have the documentation of how much you received and where was it in your financials and what what does that forgiveness look like? Because that will absolutely be a question. Yeah, it's part of our valuation process as well Mm -hmm. for our valuation team Mm -hmm. to have that kind of checklist. Did you get the money? How much? And then was it it forgiven? And, you know, again, documentation from the bank that's been sent off the IRS. IRS and have the kind of stamp of approval. So yeah, that's certainly uh, just something to think about in uh, kind of this post-COVID world, correct? Yep. Okay. So this is one that we try very hard to avoid here at NDP. LOI changes, mm-hmm. right? So we've given a letter of intent. The goal of that letter of intent is the skeleton of an offer. It's the good faith decision between buyers and sellers on what the terms, the material rocks of that transition. Bunch of episodes on LOI and like what those big rocks are. But what happens when that changes? Give me an example of this. So there are many, many brokers in this business that for the broker to release the information on the practice, okay? So say, for example, the, it's a million dollar practice and say, for example, the price is eight fifty. You love the practice, high level, you've seen some of the basic numbers, but none of the actual tax returns and profit and loss statements. They're just kind of saying, hey, this thing does a million and hey, it makes 400,000. Hey, the price is 850. Well, sure, you excited. There's maybe a lot of people that are interested in this. You actually put the letter of intent in for that particular practice. The problem is, is now during due diligence is you find something, maybe your team, the buyer representation for the buyer, finds something that they don't like. That could be a multiple of things. It could be, hey, there was maybe some slight misrepresentation on active patients. It could be number of new patients. It could be the equipment and the practice that was completely outdated. It could be, you know. You didn't realize the spouse wasn't paid, but right. perform a super critical role. And so now cash flows are lower. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, it, it certainly it makes 400000 but this spouse is a five-day-a-week employee and it's in California and it would have to maybe $80,000 to replace that type of person. So therefore this... It could be Delta Dental, you know, mm-hmm. the, the percentage was shown as 25, and now that we're really inside, you know, the practice, it's more like 40%. So there's a lot of things that during your due diligence that you may find as a buyer. Now, as a seller, you get that letter of intent, and it's for that $800,000. In your mind, seller, you have an $800,000 check coming, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's, a, that's We agreed to this. Well, we agreed for the buyer to sign that letter of intent to do the due diligence. And now what they're coming back is offering this amount. So this is going to potentially hurt your feelings, cause some emotion on your side. And then certainly as a buyer, you're not necessarily, you know, you can walk away from the deal. We just signed that for that one reason. But it just recently happened where we agreed on a million two deal. But during the due diligence, the buyer's team, we worked with the seller, they came back and it was a million. So it was a little bit of a heartache. 
you know, but yeah. I had to remind the seller that this was a big transaction because there was some real estate involved as well. So it was over $2 million deal total. And that you could see why on their side without emotion of maybe why they did come back with that lower number. So it's just important to know that from a buyer and seller standpoint, that letter of intent it's a goal number that we're going to hit, but that can change. And it's important if you're a seller listening to this and maybe you aren't using us, and but maybe your buyer is, or maybe you're, you're not even there yet, know that if whoever you utilize chooses to take the approach of we get a letter of intent signed before we release any documents and we really want them to show you know that good faith that they're interested you know we'll hear from other brokers that hey you know there's really nothing in there that's binding except for exclusivity and that's why it's totally okay to sign this it just takes it off the market so that other people can't see it there's always a price in there Mm -hmm. and if you're choosing to kind of go about it in that route you have to understand that that price is not ever set in stone until the buyer's done their diligence. And I hope it doesn't change, but there's always that risk. And so if buyers come to us and you know they want to engage us for buyer consulting and they feel like they have to do that for whatever reason, right? Maybe they came to us late in the process or whatever it might be. We always just say, okay, we can't, like once you put the number out there, it's very hard to come back. It's, you know, all those reasons that Charles mentioned are reasons why it would come back, but we can't just change that letter of intent because, hey, now I really wish I would have offered 10 or 15 or 20,000 less, right? Like there's typically big reasons these are changing. So what we're talking about here today is like material things that are changed and we've already offered a letter of intent and we thought we were solid on that and now it's changing. Those are the changes we're kind of talking about that might come out in that process. So definitely an episode on letter of intent and pricing, all that. So just go back and listen to that if you need some additional guidance there. So, okay, this one is a little bit unique. New people as part of the deal, probably CPAs and Mm -hmm. attorneys are probably the biggest thing that can cause a delay. How can these people, depending on when they come into the process, delay a closing or kind of cause a hiccup during that closing time? Well, you'll see this very common where, let's just say that we're working with the seller, okay? And then the buyer, they're new to this process. Buyers take a lot more time actually to work with Mm -hmm. uh, because they're literally just new to the process. They're new to a lot of just expectations and timing and, you know, I got to set this down, work with this attorney to get this corp up. I got to work with this attorney on this. I got to work with that. So buyers need more time to really spend and develop a relationship with. And it's, it's very common that if I'm working with a buyer where the seller is the client, but the buyer is basically buying the practice, they can sometimes go through a series of people. They may go through one CPA and another CPA. They may go through the first attorney, not like them. They're not responding. Then I got another attorney that's involved. Then oh, we're buying the real estate and have you know now the third attorney that's actually involved. And so the expectation is is just make sure you do a lot of due diligence on the front end for the team that you hire and that ultimately you're in charge of kind of quarterbacking that process mm-hmm. and like to work with these people if, it, if at all possible on flat fees. I like the expectation you set with them as don't mess this up for me. This is what I want to do. And so you have attorneys, we need attorneys, but sometimes it just feels like there's a lot of I went to law school and I'm going to change 50 pages of documents with every comma and every I and every this and cut this sentence out because of this. It can really beat down the process, especially when it's clean transaction. If the practice is for sale, we're buying it. I mean, really? I mean, it's not complicated. My favorite happened recently. We'll say how recently. And the client came to us and said, well, my CPA actually has no experience in orthodontic or dental or, you know, sales, but they're not sure about the price. 
I wasn't really sure how to respond to that, you know? Like, okay, well, I do. And so what do you want to talk about, you know? Turned out it was nothing, right? But I think it's just those, at the end of this long process, right? This is an emotional process, right? Our role is always to help remove some of that emotion. It is a transaction, but it is a transition, right? And that's why we call it a transition versus a transaction. There's a lot of emotion that goes into these things. And at the 11th or 12th hour, you're probably really tired of the process. So when an attorney or a CPA or... I don't know, maybe it's just your buddy or your colleague who has not done this before or has done this before but did it in a different way, says something, I think that logically both buyer and seller understand and are still comfortable with the deal, but it kind of plants a seed of doubt that they then have to work through again, right? Mm -hmm. So oftentimes these last minute additions to the team, again, they're overcome, right? We work through it but it delays or causes a little bit of a seed of doubt if like the clear intentions of what that person's role should be isn't kind of mapped out by you, the client first, right? Like this is what I'm needing from you. I feel comfortable in all the other pieces. If you don't feel comfortable, one, we probably should have talked about it way earlier than near, as we near closing, but if you don't feel comfortable, that's a different story. But I think most of the time these people are brought in as like an extra check or like a just do this one thing and then they give opinions on other pieces and then it just plants this weird like question that we then have to kind of go back, review everything. Okay, we're great, we're good, we're solid, and we move on. It's just that emotional piece of it. Well, and again, just kind of going back to the complexity of this deal. So we're representing a, a client. We actually include the legal documents. So we're telling the attorney mm-hmm. what to do at the last minute say, hey, this person's buying this practice for X amount. Here's how we're going to handle the asset allocation. Here's how we're going to handle the lease. Here's how we're going to handle any work that was done correctly. Here's how we're going to handle it. And it's just good, solid documents. But then the client says, well, I think I'd prefer my own attorney to review that. And then the buyer's attorney, you know, hired one attorney and they start working. And they're no, no, I need another attorney. Now I've got my attorney and then they have two attorneys and then we have third. And we're not done. And I got then I've got the, the buyer's going to hire another attorney because they don't like the first attorney. And then now there's real estate involved. So or let's get the it. buyer's brother's cousin is an attorney and they're just going to take a quick peek. Oh, my God. But the, no dental experience. Those contracts. So I'm telling you that these deals that even though they seem simple and clean, can have a lot of questions. It's just a roller coaster. And that's the whole idea of this podcast. The whole idea of this episode is to really set the emotional tone that it's going to be complicated. And know, especially at that last like two weeks, you're coming down the roller coaster at the fastest speed. You know, got this G force coming around these turns, your stomachs and knots, and you're ready just to freaking hit the eject button. Mm-hmm. Be prepared. Yeah. Had a good call. This is not prepared, but had a good call with a client who was just, you know, having some doubts about their practice. They were going to buy their opportunity. And I said, look, like this is a super emotional, super scary process. And it should be right. You're about to spend whatever level of money you're about to take out is probably a very large amount, right? And probably bigger than, or at least equal to your student debt. There should always be a sense of nervousness or like uncertainty that you have, right? I think anyone who comes into this process that is not nervous at all is either a complete rock star or isn't ready and doesn't know what they're doing. But there's a difference between like a gut feeling of this is wrong and just a level of nervousness. And I think some people throughout this process have a hard time, and especially as you near closing, because it's becoming real. Like this is gonna happen, that date's two weeks away. Oh my gosh, I'm about to be introduced to the staff or whatever that next two weeks look like. And so there's just that apprehension that I think heightens all of these senses and, and these extra influences and new parties coming into the deal, I just think have a bigger impact than they probably would have week two or three in the deal when we were all kind of still logically and that was like far in the future. So, okay, this is one that is not ideal. This is like the worst case situation. What happens when parties back out? 
buyers and sellers, let's go there first. Yep. So typically the people I see back out the most are the sellers. The sellers are backing out, in my experience, for one reason, their financial plan. Basically, the numbers of this transaction, for whatever reason, they're just kind of starting to realize that they can't afford to do it. They thought emotionally they were ready. And now they're emotionally just, I'm not ready. So it's, it's finance and it's emotion. And, you know, sometimes it's when I see them back out as well, you know, kind of the, a lack of team guiding them through this on a complicated transaction. Complicated transactions would be like a partnership where you're going to have to truly be in partnership with this person, meaning three, five, you know, 10 plus years. And so it could be the finances work, but it's just not that person. They kind of get weirded out and sometimes it takes a little bit. They have to go like really far in this process to, to get through that. But I just want you to be prepared that you know, like in a marriage, the bride or groom can leave you and to be prepared. So you again, do a lot of that due diligence on the front end to make sure this is definitely the right person. From a buyer's perspective, I don't see it very often that they just bail on you sellers, but I typically see when they quote unquote bail is that it has something to do with their situation. So in other words, they can't get approval from lending. Could be a spouse, you know, situation. There's something that is going on that is preventing this process. But I would say the few times that I don't see it work, the vast majority of those times are going to be on the seller basically pulling the deal out, you know, from the mm-hmm. buyer. And the few times on the buyer's not being able to do this, it typically has something to do with lending. Yeah, I would agree. Or like we said earlier, if there's a change in diligence or For the sure. LOI kind of piece and something is not as it was expected and they can't come to terms, right? right. Like something like that, but not necessarily at closing right. time when Agreed. they're kind of backing out. For After sure. due diligence. Yeah. That's, that's probably yeah. a better way. After due diligence you know, has been done, yeah. then I don't see buyers typically backing out. Yeah. What we do see sometimes is banks backing out, right? Banks who have said, we can do this as long as X, Y, and Z happen. Mm-hmm. And one of the those things can't be met. And sometimes that just means a delay. Like we can't do this until this happens. So sometimes we'll see this when as part of liquidity for a buyer, they had to sell a home or have a certain amount of money or they had a certain amount of money, but then they used too much of it during the diligence process or not on the diligence process, but just as part of life happening. And then when they get to that final closing condition of let's check off all of these items, they're missing one. And so banks say, well, you know, we told you what we needed and we can't do that. Or maybe something's happened with the practice and they're just doing that last check of practice financials and cash flow and something doesn't check out and the banks say, ooh, we can't do that. Yeah, remember that the person on the front end that is basically pre-approving this, typically a sales type of role, and they have looked at this and they went up like literally one step of a 50-foot ladder and they go, yep, pre-approved, looks good. Uh, 800,000, good, let's get going. And now we've got 49 other steps to go. And so through that risk department, the due diligence, they have a million different processes and steps. And again, all coming down the last minute. And they're like, uh, yeah, uh, if we don't have the seller carry this or you don't sell this house or you don't do the following or we need one more month of production, you need this, you need to work in the office as an associate first, all of a sudden, we'll still get you the loan. You just need to do all these other things. And that will cause either for the seller to go, okay, that's just a hurdle we need to do, or it may cause the buyer sometimes just to freak out a little bit. Wow, so you were confident before, now you're not. So then that kind of freaks them a little bit, and now they're just you know going to go a different direction. Yeah, and I think initially we have some people come to us and say, hey, I know who I want to work with. 
whatever bank that is. And our advice is always like get approved with multiple banks because if something were to happen, not all banks are created equal, not all banks have the same contingencies or conditions. Like if you have the ability to then, if something does happen and you're still confident, right? Whatever that looks like, you have another direction and maybe they've already done some legwork. So it's not, you're starting over from ground zero. Maybe you just, you can kind of jump into their process. So a lot of times that's kind of why we get that recommendation. So we have backups and we have additional certainties because if you've only ever worked with one bank and at closing they back out that's one scary no matter what but it can also put that doubt right but if you know other banks have approved and maybe didn't have the same conditions or they were a different structure maybe that allows you to kind of emotionally be like okay this is okay this is just a hurdle let's move on to the next solution and we both want this to happen what's the ultimate goal let's figure out a way to make this work yeah obviously with a seller or buyer if i'm working with a seller and it says well the buyer has financing i'm like well i want to talk to the buyer who yeah. are they i want to talk to them are they realistic I'm asking things like what their liquidity is, what bank they're working with, and to see if there's any red flags. So I never want to help either party, buyer or seller, until I've interviewed that other person. If I can't get that other person on the phone, I'm not interested in in guiding them because you need to see what's going to work and what's not going to work. They tell me they're working with X bank. I'm like, I've had horrible success with that bank. I don't know if I've ever done a deal with that bank. That Mm -hmm. makes me nervous. Do me a favor. Are you open to working with other banks? Absolutely. Great. Then let me make an introduction to you. Worst case, you've got two or three people approved. And worst case, there's lots of competition for the lowest possible lending rates. Win-win for everybody. Another back out that we have to touch on because it's happened. I would say more rare, but a seller who says, hey, I thought this was the route, but I just got an offer for or from a private equity DSO type of firm. It's so sad when I see this happen for the buyer. Yeah. Yeah. And usually this is not going to be 100% walk away, you know, smaller practice. It's going to be one of those bigger practices, maybe a partnership, maybe something where this is not your first practice entry level this is something bigger and that seller has the capacity to work back and they get another offer and they kind of do the comparison and they make the choice to kind of go the private equity route and those are the tough ones because if they make that decision there's zero discussion with the buyer i wasn't thinking about this when we prepped for this today but man the story is so real gp practice up in the northeast does like three and a half to four million unbelievable or like 50 percent this associate has got almost like prosthodontic type training doing crazy numbers like a million five million seven restorative so a big giant part of this practice has an associate agreement senior doctor is doing a little bit less than that than the rest is in hygiene and the plan was to sell to the buyer and then a private equity offer comes in and it was something like six million and like five million in cash and Man. he sold. And so then the buyer's coming to me and like, what do you think I should do? And I'm like, oh, you know, social agreement and keep working. I mean, I can't help you. You're like you either need to go find another practice, figure out what your non-compete is and, but it is what it is. And so you certainly want to make sure that you're not that committed into something, you know, where you're a million five of the restorative, you, you kind of want to know what you're getting yourself into and have a reasonable plan. I'm not saying as a 26 year old D4, like you got to have everything figured out, but certainly you want to know what the practice is and it's going to be a partnership and can you buy it out and at least lay some of the groundwork, but not to get committed into two or three or four years and just hoping this guy or gal is going to sell to you and then last minute sell to PE. So those are tough, man. And look, I hate to say it, but I can understand at least from the seller standpoint where they're coming from. I know they committed to this, but it's a financial planning decision and ultimately like what they want to do with their life and what they have essentially built. I mean, that's why you own, that's the five reasons you must own is you're in charge and you're in charge of that. Now the equity of that thing as well. One other thing that we didn't talk about, but I think another thing that can be a big hurdle at close 
closing time, landlords. So landlords, real estate, typically it's more landlords than like if you're buying the building. Clearly buying the building is a whole nother transaction that has a whole bunch of hurdles that you have to cross and most people want to do it at the same time. So the real estate can hold up the closing, but it's not really a hurdle, right? Most of the time we understand what's going on with that building purchase and wanting them to happen at the same time. But landlords can absolutely be a hurdle that we don't expect, right? So the issue is the timing of the introduction of that landlord. We oftentimes want to wait until we know that the deal is far enough along to make that introduction, because again, it's kind of that level of confidentiality that we're trying to maintain. But the landlord has all the control. They have zero initiative or incentive, is probably a better word, to do this, right? They're gonna have a tenant that's the same lease regardless, or signing over a lease. They have held up more deals than probably any of these other things combined. And it's because they don't care. They just don't care. And so what we suggest is, one, making sure you understand what your lease says, right? Right now, I don't care if you're not transitioning for five years, right? If you look at your lease, make sure it's assignable. Make sure you understand what that does, especially if you're going to go through any renewals or renegotiating of your lease before it's time to transition. Make sure it's assignable. Make sure you understand what that process looks like. And we always say the sooner we can introduce that person to the buyer, if you're a seller, the better. And so what that means is we want the buyer to have confirmation of lending that we want to know that they can get the money. And we typically like to see if possible, like either a fully engaged letter of intent or preferably we've seen legal docs one time, right? Sometimes timing doesn't work and we're trying to move too quickly so we can't get to that legal doc piece, but for sure confirmation of lending, for sure an executed letter of intent that has all the pieces so we know that like we're on the same page communication wise. And then making that introduction over to that landlord so that they can begin to have those conversations conversations and we know it's going to be an easy process. If you are listening and you're a seller and you have a great relationship with your landlord, you talk to them all the time, they're a buddy of yours, like you know this is not going to be a problem, fantastic. But for most of us, we don't talk to our landlord unless there's a problem and so we don't really know what their communication style or responsiveness or process is and that can be a big hurdle there at the end. I can think of something as ridiculous as we were trying to close within a month period and the landlord was out of the country and he's not going to work on it. He's going to work on it when he got back. Yeah. So this was like three weeks of us not knowing, you know, on getting a lease assigned or not. And now we're up to the last minute and now it's delayed. So just craziness like that. The other thing I know I've mentioned this before is month to month. Mm. Oh my God. Mm, Seller heads up. If you're in a month to month lease because, hey, you're at the tail end of this thing, then understand that is a complicated, the buyer will not get lending and just to take over a month to month that you will have to have a new lease assigned. So it's, it's a hurdle that we need to deal with and communicate with both you and the buyer. And that way the two of you can go to the landlord and get that done. But again, landlord has no incentive on those month to month leases. So that will have to be repaired before the deal gets done. So I don't really have a positive note to uh, land on here. I feel like while we've talked about our bad things, it really goes against my positive spin on this. But positive spin is knowledge is power, knowing these things exist, being as prepared as we can on these and kind of knowing that when they happen, there's solutions and there's a process for fixing it. And at the end of the day, if you and the seller are on the same page that you want that transition to happen, these are just delays. They're not things that we can't kind of cross. Yeah, this again, this episode is with the intent to kind of prepare you mentally. That's where I think people get so sideways in life is they had no idea. It's like you go to the airport. Guess what? 
there's going to be a line. Guess what? TSA people are ridiculous. Guess what? You know, the plane's going to be delayed. Guess what? Can you tell we just went through an airport on Sunday? (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) All right, team. That's all we have for today. Thank you for joining us on episode 69 of Transition Talk. And if you're looking for more, remember, there's 68 plus episodes out there. And episode 27 is where we cover the basics of closing time. And as always, make sure you share the transition love with those who may not know of us yet. And of course, subscribe to Transition Talk wherever you listen to your podcast. Until next time. Awesome, guys.